You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. When the 1920 Democratic Convention opened in San Francisco, there was a new device, a microphone and a loudspeaker. That meant that calm speakers like Carter Glass of Virginia could be heard just as loud as William Jennings Bryan. Bryan got up to the podium, took the microphone, and shoved it aside. He didn't need it. His party would hear him from one side of the hall to the other. And hear him they did. But it was a sign that his party was rapidly moving past him. Everyone thought the president was so clever when he made one of his chief rivals his secretary of state. And it's happened several times before, not just in 2009. When Woodrow Wilson became president in 1913, the endorsement, or really the acquiescence, of Bryant was needed for Wilson to triumph. While it doesn't appear a deal was actually spoken of directly, Bryant was a power in the party with his own fans, lots of newspaper attention to anything Bryant said, and so it was pretty much settled that after Wilson won the election, Bryant would become ambassador to the Court of St. James, the ambassador to the UK, or secretary of state. Wilson's advisor, Colonel House of Texas, was a supporter of the idea. We know it was at least partly a political move. A popular column at the time in 1913, Finley Peter Dunn's Mr. Dooley column, in which he would talk about politics with the viewpoint of an Irishman. He said of Brian, With a brick in his hand, he's as good as a rifleman. I'd rather have him close to me bosom than on me back. But not everybody on the Wilson campaign agreed. Campaign manager William McCombs hated the idea of putting Bryan into the Wilson administration. He felt that Bryan had done everything he could to get that nomination of the Democratic Party in Baltimore in 1912 for himself. He warned Wilson about him. Bryan regards himself as the only American to be president. You are in his way. I beg of you, do not allow him into your confidence. He will build up a machine that will plague you. Wilson listened to McCombs, but disagreed. The campaign was over, and it was time to govern. And governing meant compromise, and to do that he needed a strong party. When Wilson revealed that his intentions were partially political, when he said to McCombs, the Bryan party wing would become an administration auxiliary if he became Secretary of State. And so it happened. At first it worked. On Mexico, on the Caribbean, big issues to confront the administration early on in international affairs. The two, Wilson and Bryan, were side by side. But things changed with the outbreak of war, which occurred during Wilson's and Bryan's government. It drove a wedge between the two eventually. Bryan, like many in the south and west of the country, saw the British as disrupting American shipping just like the Germans were and wanted a parallel, truly neutral policy that treated the British as harshly as we might treat the Germans. 
He resisted any loans to any belligerents, UK or German, saying that the money was helping to cause the conflict. When at a cabinet meeting, he said that some members of the cabinet were not so neutral as they pretended to be. Wilson reprimanded Bryan. You are not warranted, Mr. Bryan, in making such an assertion. German U-boats were targeting British ships, and sometimes Americans were on that ship, and sometimes they accidentally or otherwise targeted American ships and sunk them. Here or there, a life would be lost. But when on May 7, 1915, the Germans sunk the Lusitania off the Irish coast, the Germans allege, and historians have since proven, that it was carrying munitions, but there were civilian passengers on board, and 124 Americans died. Pressure was strong in the country for a reaction. Bryan still wanted a conference and wrote a letter to the Germans as Secretary of State that said that they respected their common cultures but needed to clear the misunderstandings. Wilson disagreed and issued a stronger letter. He sent a note saying American rights would be respected. The sinking had been an illegal action and he demanded that Germany cease unrestricted submarine warfare against unarmed merchantmen. He then sent Colonel House on a mission to visit allies and try to gather support for a peace conference, which should have been the purview of the Secretary of State. On June 9, 1915, William Jennings Bryan has had enough. He resigns, and he said to Wilson, Colonel House has been the Secretary of State. I have never had your full confidence. When Bryan resigned, he lost a bit of support. He, there was disappointment, not only from politicians not only from members of the Wilson cabinet and Wilson himself, but from newspapers. Unspeakable treachery, said the New York World, a Democratic paper. Bryan's own family hated leaving Washington, and many of his supporters were disappointed that he left the government. But now Bryan was free to speak his mind, and it was dangerous. As 1915 and 1916 continued, there would be another election year, and there was some disappointment in progressive Democratic ranks about the militarism of Wilson's letters and actions. There was some talk of a challenge in 1916, but in the end, Bryant did not. In fact, he ended up campaigning forcefully for Wilson, and he thanked the Democratic Party for encouraging clever thought among its party members, despite differences. When the war was declared, Bryant was fully supportive. I tender my services. Enroll me as a private wherever needed and assign me to any work he said. Wilson did not take Bryan up on the offer to have a 57-year-old private in the army, however. And after the war, there was talk of a 1920 nomination for Bryan. The Democrats really didn't have any great candidates. Bryan was the best known, and despite its shortness, he now had government experience. Yet the party had a strong wet faction, anti-prohibition of alcohol, and particularly in New York and New Jersey. In New Jersey, Governor Edwards there wanted to make New Jersey as wet as the Atlantic Ocean. And the Democratic Party, many in it, wanted to pursue a course of action that, well, yes, we have prohibition as an amendment, but we're not going to enforce it. And that'll be our position as a party. Bryan was on the other side of this issue in every way. He, he pushed as hard as any Democrat could for prohibition. And this kind of soured his image in the party. Plus, even for the great commoner with lots of fans... He was aware that he had lost three times. After losing a party nomination three times, nobody's done that since. It's hard to beg for a nomination. It really, if anything, has to be handed to you. And Brian's strategy after his last loss in 1908 seems to be exactly that. Not 
campaigning for the nomination directly, but hoping that he would be begged to take it. To even get to the San Francisco convention in 1920, he had to run for his seat against a pro-Wilson Senator Hitchcock in Nebraska. Bryan won, but Hitchcock warned that they were sending troublemakers to the convention. And Bryan did try to stir things up a bit. He lost on three issues, one on the League, where he recommended compromise on the League of Nations, one on prohibition, one on compulsory investigation of labor disputes. But Wilson's men held the convention. Bryan lost on all three points, which showed that he didn't have enough support in the convention to get his nomination. And he stood up on the podium and made a strong defense of prohibition in an increasingly wet party. He pointed out the delegates from the eastern states and said, Are you ashamed of what your party did? Most states with Democratic governors ratified prohibition. When an eastern delegate shouted, I voted for you in the past. Yes, Brian said, and I'm sorry if you won't vote for me again because I stood for the home against the saloon. I'll get two more in your place. He then went on to trash the Democratic Party, calling them evaders and not crusaders. He submitted ten names that he would approve at the convention. The convention considered none of them. By the 55th ballot in 1920, as Governor James Cox was about to win, Bryan washed his hands of the whole thing, said he would play no part. And the hand-washing continued into the general election. Cox came to Bryan to try to get him to campaign for him. He did not do it. Bryan once issued a statement saying, a Republican progressive or a Republican dry is just as good as a Democrat who's not a progressive or a Democrat who's a wet. Among any things that hurt him, Brian, yes, his position on prohibition, but also the fact that he had entered government and then left it. For a lot of people, there was talk about Brian being all talk and no action. He can't govern. You... There was a joke that was being told at the time that he was the boy orator from the Platte. And then the joke was that the Platte had a narrow beginning, but a big mouth. And that was applied to Brian. Eric Atkinson writes me, So on a purely random note of speculative trivia, if Hillary is elected president in 2016, she would be the first woman president, the first president who is also the spouse of an ex-president, only the third Democrat elected to succeed another elected Democrat, not as the result of a president's death, the first Democrat to succeed another elected Democrat in our history of our two current party system, is slightly debatable since the GOP did run its first presidential candidate in 1856 against Buchanan, and Buchanan won, and then thereby succeeded Franklin Pierce, but that was a multi-party race before the GOP was fully established as the country's permanent second party. And Hillary Clinton would be the first former Secretary of State elected to the office since John Quincy Adams, Van Buren, and Buchanan in 1824, 1840, and 1856. She would also be the second oldest person elected president after Reagan. And to take the hypotheticals one step further, if Hillary was elected to a second term in 2020, she would be the first two-term president to follow three other two-term presidents in office. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. 
and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, all made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride purpose they stitch people together if all that sounds good to you visit american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use code staple 20 at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com with promo code staple 20 there you go eric great stuff pretty much right i mean there's a lot of exceptions there and the democrats it's always kind of easy to say the first because there was a very long period of no democratic presidents between the civil war and wilson and of course, you had Grover Cleveland, and he took the two. But let's take the last thing first. It's getting a little bit wacky. Three, two terms in a row. Wow. So you had Clinton with two terms, Bush with two terms, Obama with two terms. The last time that happened was Jefferson with two terms, Madison with two terms, Monroe with two terms. It's hard to imagine that for the first time ever, there could be four series of two terms in a row. Even just to have three terms in a row of the same party is pretty rare. Did happen, of course, in the 1980s. The Republicans held the White House. Of course, FDR did it with his four terms, and the Republicans of the 1920s did it. But let's put that aside for a second. If you had asked uh, me this question last year, I would have probably said, no, I don't think that Hillary's going to be a serious candidate for the presidency of the United States. Secretary of State was a swan song. That's it. Now I'm leaning more towards saying that she'll be one of the candidates. I am not saying she's going to win, but there would be little that would stop her on the Democratic side at this point. When she ran in 2008, it was in the midst of the Iraq War. You know, I just think that she had a lot of baggage from that. President Obama benefited from that. But now, anyone who was an Obama supporter got what they wanted, and they got what they wanted again. Now there's only one other power source in the Democratic Party right now, and that's the Clintons. So I think it's, you have some time, like by 2014, 20, really by 2015, whoever's going to be in this race should be known. There are a couple of, I know Martin O'Malley in Maryland's going to run. So you know from past broadcasts, particularly about John McCain, how I feel about age and the presidency, that it's go for it time, you know. Presidents were killed by infection, and they were killed by heart disease which is not as much of a problem as it used to be. I mean, it is, of course, but there's Lipitor and erythromycin. So yes, presidents tend to be in the 50s, but that's not going to stop her. Now, there's no way that Clinton could have run in 2012. There's no way that she could have run against the sitting president where she had served as a secretary of state for him. Placing Hillary Clinton in the secretary of state position was an extremely smart political move for President Obama. Basically, almost guaranteed re-election right there. Because the number one reason sitting presidents lose re-election is party strife. Very similar event occurred when Woodrow Wilson made William Jennings Bryan his Secretary of State. He wasn't necessarily happy with Wilson at that point, not happy with his foreign policy, but he couldn't run against him. There would be too much public embarrassment. You had supported the administration, you had been part of the administration, now you're running against them. It just doesn't work. I think on the Republican side, you know, you already see Chris Christie and Rand Paul trading barbs, and I, 
you know, those could be two potential candidates. If you have Clinton, you're probably going to have at least one significant candidate who is an anti-Hillary Clinton type candidate who tries to get that vote. And then we'll see what happens. On the Republican side, I can't see anyone just kind of walking to it. There's going to be a fight. But to look at a bit of the history of your your question that it posed, so Hillary Clinton running for president is bringing back a tradition that was put aside for a very long time. The Secretary of State running for president. I mean, Al Haig tried. He was Secretary of State under Reagan. You have to go back to Buchanan, Van Buren, John Quincy Adams. One thing you notice, it did not work out so well for those guys. All of them were one-termers. And then if you add two people that came from the cabinet, so William Howard Taft, who was Roosevelt's Secretary of War, and Herbert Hoover, Secretary of Commerce under Coolidge, one-termers. Is it just kind of a curse, or does it reflect that if you come from the executive branch, you kind of have this nose-up-in-the-air attitude, governing, and you're not that good at politics? can look at 2016, but we can also look at 2020 then, if we do. And you have a lot of danger signs. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm here saying that, sure, it wouldn't shock me now if a Hillary Clinton were to run for president. It wouldn't shock me if she won the election. But there's a lot of danger signs for that re-election. Really getting to four two-term presidents in a row would be hard to imagine. Eventually, somebody's got to roll the bad die. Okay, so many people are putting this recent case in Henderson, Nevada on my radar. It occurred after my Third Amendment podcast. Henderson police arrested a family for refusing to let officers use their homes as lookout for a domestic violence investigation of their neighbors. On the morning of July 10th, 2011, officers from the Henderson, Nevada Police Department responded to a domestic violence call at a neighbor's residence. An officer contacted Anthony Mitchell, contacted him via his telephone. The officer told Mitchell, the police need to occupy your home in order to gain a tactical advantage against the occupant of the neighboring house. Anthony Mitchell told the officer that he did not want to become involved, and he didn't want the police to enter his residence. Well, a few minutes before noon, at least five officers arrayed themselves in front of Anthony Mitchell's house. They banged forcefully on the door, and loudly commanded Anthony Mitchell to open the door to his residence. What does Anthony Mitchell do? He calls his mother, Linda Mitchell, telling her that the police are beating on his door. Well, there's no answer to the door, so officers use a metal ram and bust open the door. As Anthony Mitchell stands in shock, the telephone in his hand, the officers aim their weapons at him, shout obscenities, according to the report of the Mitchells, and order him to lie down on the floor. Fearing for his life, Mitchell drops the phone, covers his face, and hands. They told him to shut off the phone, and they told him to crawl towards the officers. Confused and terrified, Anthony Mitchell remained on the floor, curled up, hands over his face, made no movement. Officers fire multiple pepperball rounds at him. As he lay defensive on the floor, Mitchell was struck at least three times by shots fired from close range, injuring him, causing severe pain. Officers then arrest him for obstructing a police officer, search the house, move furniture, etc., and set up the place to use as a lookout of the neighboring home. Fortunately, that's not all to the story. Mitchell's pet, a female dog named Sam, a terrified animal, according to the Mitchells, posed no threat, but they shot it in the face with a pepper bowl round. The animal panicked, howled in fear, and fled from the residence. This is Nevada. It is over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The dog was left trapped outside for much of the day.
The officers also move to Linda Mitchell's residence. They're in separate houses. They take Michael Mitchell to the police station. When he tries to leave, he's handcuffed. When Michael Mitchell starts to realize this is just an attempt to get him out of his house so they can use his house, which he doesn't want them to do, he tries to leave the police station. He's arrested, handcuffed, and placed in the back of a marked police car. Both Anthony Michael Mitchell are then thrown into the jail. Anthony Michael Mitchell are booked for obstructing an officer. Eventually, all the criminal claims are dismissed. The case doesn't end because the Mitchells now file a suit against the Henderson, Nevada Police Department because, among other things, their Third Amendment rights are violated. I think it's just one of these merit-lacking third cases that do come up from time to time that people thinking that any time troops or police enter their house that it's quartering. Quartering had a very, very specific definition. No troops shall be quartered in any home. Very simple. It is not a metaphor for all military, for all police, happening to use your home as a venue. In this story, although I do feel sympathy for the Hendersons and for their dog, I also feel sympathy perhaps for any victim that might have been in the neighboring house. And perhaps uh, the police needed to get a better position in order to save somebody's life. So, uh, you know, there's a difference between using your house for a search, where items going to be in that search are going to be used against you in a persecution, and a tactical use of a home during a live and occurring situation. The police are bound to have a first priority of saving lives or saving someone from injury. So that's what I think about it. I, I really think quartering is very clear in the meaning of it when it was enacted. It's really providing, being forced to provide by the government, bed, rest, and food for extended period of time for soldiers. So I think it's a real stretch. Now, I know that you know constitutional rights can expand, but I think it's a real stretch to turn the third into just a simple metaphor for any time troops enter a house. Tristan Johnson writes me, I invite you to check out my series Then and Now on YouTube, doing my third episode tomorrow, and given the Anthony Weiner case, I'm talking about some sex scandals in history. Was the Grover Cleveland scandal confirmed ever? Well, the Grover Cleveland scandal involved allegations that he had had a child with Maria Halpin. Maria Halpin was a store clerk in Buffalo. Grover Cleveland was a lawyer in Buffalo. He was a bachelor. His law partner and a few other friends were known to go to bars, and they had dealings with local women. Maria Halpin was one of them. Maria Halpin had a child. The father of the child was never confirmed. It's likely that it was one of two people. It was either Oscar Folsom, who was Grover Cleveland's law partner, or it was Grover Cleveland himself. The child that Maria Halpin had was named Oscar Folsom Cleveland. Kind of tells you what she was thinking about it. Some of her own friends had said at the time that she wasn't even sure who the father was. She was paid money to be quiet. She was paid money to give up the child eventually. Regular child support payments were made. Eventually the mother was committed for a short time and during that period the child was placed in an orphanage. Later, the child was placed with a prominent family in Buffalo. Was it ever confirmed? Well, the fact was that Grover Cleveland had been paying for child support. So it's one of two things. 
It's either Grover's kid or he was covering up for Oscar Folsom, his law partner, because Oscar Folsom was married. Now, there's a couple interesting things in this story. If indeed Oscar Folsom Cleveland turns out to have been Oscar Folsom's son and not Grover Cleveland's, then it would be true that Grover Cleveland ended up marrying Oscar Folsom Cleveland's sister. Cleveland married Oscar Folsom's daughter, Frances Folsom, married her in the White House. Oscar Folsom Cleveland became the son, through adoption, of Johnny King, a prominent gynecologist in Buffalo, and then uh, he studied it as well. So Johnny King became, uh, developed his own gynecology practice and was successful. We know that. We know that he died in 1947 and that he didn't say anything publicly that was recorded about the scandal whatsoever. Did he talk to friends? Perhaps, but there's no letters, no newspaper accounts, no anything that anyone can seem to track down uh, him talking about the Cleveland scandal. I want to thank you for listening. Quick one this time. Just wanted to talk about a few topics, you know. Uh, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics is the website. The archive, $25.99. The button where you can listen to Stitcher. Very important that you favorite us on Stitcher. Uh, get those ratings up. And if you like the program, do tell someone else about it. Thanks for listening. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Super Beats Heart Choose Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for heart health support, the new Super Beats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.